on episode 94 of the InsureTech Geek podcast, talking about IoT and its role in the future of insurance with Dan Campany from The Hartford. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. We are back. Another great episode of the InsureTech Geek Podcast. Got my fellow Texagander. That's a, Mich- a combination of Texan and Michigander. Mr. Rob Galbraith, uh, beautiful San Antonio. Rob, I'm going to be in your town tonight my friend. Oh, funny. I'm going to be in Austin. <laughs> I'm leaving right after this, ah. after we record. So <laughs> you heard I was coming and you're getting out, huh? That's right. That's right. Yeah. This town's only big enough for one <laughs> insure tech geek. Can't have both. So I'm going into Austin to see a concert. Uh, do you know who Kristen Chenoweth is? Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. Yes. It's she was she was in Wicked and she was in yeah. uh, Glee and she was in a bunch of stuff. So I've got front row seats. Nice to see my girl Kristen with my oldest daughter. That's awesome. So can't wait. Yeah, at the Majestic downtown San Antonio, my, one of my favorite places. Yeah, it's a beautiful theater. So how are things in San Antonio, Rob? Good. They're good. It's just starting to cool down finally. We're getting a little bit of rain and uh, we're coming to the end of summer. Still hot, but uh, yeah, you know, telling people when it cools down to to ninety. You know, you actually do feel it. It, it sounds strange to say, but uh, from oh, yeah. you know hundreds down to ninety, it's it takes the edge off. So it's it's been kind of nice. Yeah, one hundred nine is pretty insufferable. When I got back from Michigan, I was like, "What is this? Why are we in an oven?" I couldn't, uh, I couldn't take it, man. That's uh, it's too much. So, a slight plug for for Rob, by the way, if you're not subscribed to his newsletter, Forest View Insights. If that, am I saying it correctly? Forest View Insights. Um, he has a wonderful email newsletter you can subscribe to. Yeah, the company name is Forest View Insights, and the, the newsletter is uh, Forest View, and people can check it out at seetheforestview.com. It's free, comes out twice weekly, so highly encourage folks to check it out. Worth the read. Let me just say that. So is his book. I'm a fan. I'm like a, like a co-host fanboy. And with us from Connect, Connect I Cut. That's how I always remembered how to, how to spell it, because I'm from Louisiana, and we're kind of slow. Uh, I was born and raised in Louisiana. You know, we can't spell well much in South Louisiana, so they always say, Connect I Cut. He's from Connecticut, Dan Campany. What's going on, Dan? How's it going? Man, doing great. Doing great. Um, excited to, uh, to talk about IoT and InsureTech and all kinds of other fun things. Dan, let's talk about you for a second, sure. because we're going to talk about InsureTech. We're going to talk a lot about IoT, because you are... The vice president of innovation and head of IoT at this uh, small insurance company. Some people might have never heard of called the Hartford. It's it's not a deer; it's a stag. Correct. I was told that many times, and so it's he's he's from the stag at the Hartford. Okay, so now that we've established that, let's talk about you. Uh, tell me, like, where were you born and raised? And when you were a kid, what you what you dream of doing? Born and raised in upstate New York. Uh, north of Utica, Syracuse area. When I was a kid, I'm sure I wanted to be a professional athlete, uh, but those dreams were dashed before I left high school. So uh, after that, I went to college with a looking for a Bachelor of Arts and uh, unsure what I was going to do after that. Yeah, where's Hamilton College? That's where you went. Yeah, it's near uh, New Hartford, Utica, New York, uh, in Clinton. Oh, great. Yeah, I was been spending some time north of the city. Uh, uh, although I will say this, I've been working with New Yorkers on the definition of upstate and it's a controversial definition. I'm just going to say some say north of Yonkers, some say north of West Plains. There, there's, there's a controversial line and it seems that people don't want to be 
north of that line. <laughs> Southern Canada. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, exactly what is upstate? It's like being in, Rob, it's like being in Michigan and defining what up north means, you know? And, and it's, bizarre, it's bizarre. In Michigan, I, I my definition of up north, Rob, in Michigan is anything north of Kalamazoo. Is, uh, it's, no, or maybe Grand Rapids, because, no, let's say Grand Rapids. Anything north of Grand Rapids is up north. Fair. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking Lansing, but yeah, very similar. So pretty much three quarters of the state. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be about the forty, the forty fourth latitude is somewhere around there. So it, it it's uh it it's uh it, it's a it's a deal, it's a deal. So Dan, you grew up there. You you think you wanted to be a professional athlete. You went to Hamilton College. You studied economics and mathematics. You were a deke there, by the way, which I think is cool. I was a Fiji, so hung out with some deeks. It was we had, we always had a good time. Very nice. And what did you go to school for econ and math for? Like, what was the what was the what was the vision or the the goal there? For me, economics it was about uh, really digging digging into the rational uh, sort of sense of why markets behave the way they do, why price points behave the way they the way they do, and understanding the underlying driving forces of the economy. Yeah. And then with respect to math, it was actually more of a I was just good at it, so I just kept doing. Yeah. It. Uh, <laughs> get the good grades, and if you can, you do. That's the way. That's the way it is sometimes, isn't it? You know, economics to me, it's not just a study of the way markets move; it's the way people behave, right? Like that's exactly like you. You you really need like a minor in psychology to understand um, <laughs> economics because very true. I mean, you know, markets driven by the people that are in them, and people behave remarkably the same way. I mean, it's like. Mm-hmm. Truly remarkable. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, like a hardcore history nerd. So huge fan of Dan Carlin's podcast, Hardcore History. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big reader, Eric Larson history books. And one thing I have learned and all the stuff I've studied is that human beings are fundamentally the same as we have been for about 10,000 years, man. <laughs> we do the same things. You're right. For the same reasons. The, the baseline assumption yeah. of most, most economic theories is rational human behavior. Yeah. So where and when that breaks down is is kind of the challenge for understanding how to apply economics in a real world situation. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's it's of course highly applicable to insurance markets because insurance is about predicting behavior, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, trying to figure out correlation and causality. Uh, so it's a it, it is we could argue just as much it, it as well as a study of human nature. Mm-hmm. Of course, we have to study mother nature. So I think I'd say if, we, if we're studying two natures in insurance, it's 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 human nature and mother nature and and interestingly you know your area of iot covers both of those now you've it, it appears to me you've been at the hartford your entire career that's correct in fact i started as an intern when i was still in college yeah that's awesome so tell me like what attracted you to the hartford and what's that ride been like cuz you've had a lot of really neat jobs there at hartford yeah, what attracted me was, uh, you know, as an intern, I was just sort of coming in to try to get my feet wet. I wasn't interested in banking where most of my fellow math econ folks were going, um, but I saw insurance as an opportunity to leverage those skill sets in a pretty broad way with a lot of optionality uh, inside a complex business with interesting products. And and uh, that was what attracted me to it. Once I got inside as an intern, it only validated the fact that I believed that someone who could bring a vision, but also that grounding in math and economics could really help the industry transform. And that's kind of been the centerpiece of my career journey since then, really. Uh, I did cut my teeth for four years in underwriting, but from there on, really, I've been trying to put myself at the forefront of change uh, and driving change in the insurance industry, whether that's the emergence of um, direct channels or alternative risk solutions or alternative distribution solutions. And most recently, prior to IoT, it was uh, 
InsureTech and the emergence of InsureTech and how we think about that as a catalyst for innovation in insurance, which really for us started in 2016. Um, and then that segued into the current uh, role in IoT that I play. So yeah. uh, that's kind of the, the brief journey. That's awesome. But I, I would think uh, however brief, you know, three and a half years that your time as an underwriter was, that's a pivotal time for you to understand and learn the insurance business. I mean, you're working in underwriting at one of the larger carriers in the world, right? So, I mean, you, you, that, that, was, that was like your second college degree, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, I, I'm thankful for it every day in terms of the, the insight, the deep desk level knowledge of working with the brokers, working with and underwriting the products and the risk and understanding how the products work in the marketplace with customers. Uh, not just the new business cycle, but the renewal cycle and the service cycle as well. And really getting the customer experience, the broker experience and the carrier mindset around how we make money from that underwriting role was was foundational. Absolutely. All right. So uh, before I hand it over to Rob, just tell us, you know, what uh, head of IoT Innovation Lab, what it means, what you're doing, what kind of stuff you're working with. Yeah, so we've got a, a team of people and this, this really started out of our insure tech scouting efforts. We realized that one of the biggest challenges a company like the Hartford has at innovating is that all the subject matter expertise that you need in order to shape the idea, bring the idea out to the market, test it, and then bring it and it's ingested into your core business and scale it is tied up in folks that have day jobs and annual priorities and they're dealing with hurricanes and Russia-Ukraine conflicts and, and all these sorts of things that, that are coming at them all the time. They don't have the time and the space to really focus on longer term innovation and they're not incentivized to do so. And there's a whole different for us philosophy around risk taking and speed and the cultural norms that we operate on from an innovation standpoint are different. So we decided to stand up the IO team to reflect those challenges and address those challenges. So it's a dedicated team of folks that only works on IoT innovation all, all day, every day. That's our full-time job. Yeah. And we've got a team of 14 people, and it's part strategy, project management, part customer solutions and technology expertise, and then a big part of it's data engineering and data science. So those are kind of the key components uh, that we oversee. And then we liaise with the business units to um, really understand their needs, what will work and might not work in the marketplace, and then get those things out in the marketplace for experiments, test them, see how they go, uh, and shape them and pivot uh, along the way. So um, my role is really, honestly, strategizing, hiring great people, overcoming barriers and blockages for those folks, and then helping them to push things forward. Yeah, that's a, that's awesome. Yeah, I, you know, innovation rarely happens in spare time, and that's the the deal. You you have to dedicate you know budget, staff, space, exactly. and give and and give them a mandate, make it their job. I mean, it's uh, something I. Um, uh, I and Rob talk about routinely is, is you, you have to be intentional and intentionality means budget. Yep. You know, it's always money, right? Rob, what you got? Yeah, Dan, thanks for walking us through your, your career journey and congrats on all your success. Um, so I, as somebody that uh, has been both on the underwriting side, led underwriting teams and innovation teams, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by your journey. I definitely see some, some parallels and um, you've been kind of an innovative, excuse me, in, in an innovation role for quite some time, uh, since 2016, AVP of innovation and, and head of the IoT innovation lab since 2018. So, so not an, I guess a, f a fly by night type operation or not just looking for a quick fist. You guys are, are really committed to this in the long run. And, um, I've seen at the InsureTech Hartford symposium and other events, just the, the amazing progress, uh, that you and your team has made. 
So I'm really curious, you know, for our listeners, we hear a lot about innovation. I think most people actually have quite a vague notion about it that most people think about ideation. And then all of a sudden, you know, the magic happens and and a new product rolls out or new offering. Uh, But it's much more than that. So can you maybe walk us through what is a week in your life and your team's life look like? Sure. So we've got a a list of in-flight use cases at various stages of maturity, everything from an idea on a napkin to something that we've tested uh, with a thousand customers and we're trying to make decisions around if and how to scale it through the whole enterprise. So we've got a dozen or so use cases at some level of that continuum. And then we've got another probably 20 to 30 ideas in our backlog. So a big chunk of my time is working with our strategy team to prioritize which of those things do we want to spend our time and money on? Because that's one of the biggest thing challenges we have is making sure we spend our time and money wisely. Um, because although we're set up to take risk and be able to try things that didn't work, there's only so much appetite for failure before eventually you've got to do something that works, right? So uh, we spend a lot of time prioritizing. I spend a lot of time cataloging and taking input from business units, from brokers and from customers that helps shape those ideas and that prioritization. I also spend a lot of time evangelizing. So I spend a lot of time with our executives and the key stakeholders in each of our business units and the business leaders explaining uh, and trying to bring the vision, the opportunity to life, um, both for the early stage napkin ideas, as well as once we get more data, we get feedback from customers, how that's shaping that vision and the business case or use case uh, as we want to invest continually to build that more towards a scalable offering. So a lot of time prioritizing, a lot of time shaping, a lot of time uh, evangelizing, uh, and a lot of time with the team at a whiteboard, uh, problem solving. And, and honestly, the weeks I feel like I'm most productive are the weeks when I'm at a whiteboard with our team saying, here's what's not working. Let's talk about how we can pivot and make it work. That's the most effective use, I think, of our, of our collective time. Yeah, thanks for spelling that out, uh, Dan. And just as a quick follow-up, when you talk about evangelizing, I'm, I'm curious kind of what that looks like. And, and I know I've given in, in talks and written about trying to uh, prevent innovation departments from becoming what I describe as pet project departments. Oftentimes when you work with the business unit leaders, mm-hmm. they have their own priorities, understandably so, but um, you know they can want to tap into your budget and your priorities. And, and obviously you're representing the entire organization at the Hartford. And so you've got to make some difficult decisions and trade-offs. So just kind of curious what that process looks like. Yeah, for evangelizing, really for us, it's about, and we often start this in-house, right? We, we get feedback from underwriters and risk engineers, and then we kind of take the idea and breathe some life into it, try to make it real, get some vendors that can do it, get some pictures, uh, get some data, uh, get some customer testimonials. And so a lot of the the first part, the first leg of our journey on an experiment is oftentimes to put something in market with even if it's only five or 10 customers, just to sort of kick the tires on the tech, kick the tires on the customer value part of it, make sure that we're headed in the right direction. And then from there, we can tell a story to the business units to say, hey, if we can bring down your, and this is all hypothetical still, right? Because we haven't fully tested it, but if we can bring down your loss ratio by 10 points, is that compelling to you? What would you do with that? Um, you know, if we can bring down your expense ratio, if we can differentiate you in this way in the marketplace and really trying to bring that to life to create the buy-in and the space um, for us to bring more business unit folks in as that idea matures and really help us shape it into something they can take ownership of uh, over the longer term. Because that's the other reason we do so much of this evangelizing or collaboration with the business units is my innovation team is no good if we build really great ideas that no one wants to take and own uh, someday. 
so someone has to take this new thing we've incubated and built into a concept that we figured out how we think it should work in the marketplace. Someone's got to take that and own that on a go forward basis. And we're really set up to be an incubation lab, not somebody, somebody that scales these ideas and owns them perpetually. Um, so that's another important piece of the evangelization uh, conversation. Yeah, I'd say it's a, it's, it's, Let's let's go back to one of the comment you made a second ago because it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about and looking at. And that's prioritization. Um, I would say it's one of the hardest things that I have to do as CEO of a near three hundred employee tech company every day is prioritize mm -hmm. my staff. Um, we have two hundred and twenty engineers that write code, and uh, you've got to keep everybody moving in the most important direction, right? So not just the same direction, but the most important one. That's a, a challenging thing. Uh, <laughs> that's a challenging thing to do. Uh, so let's talk about some of those directions you've had. What What are some of these, some of the, the big campaigns uh, or, or projects that, that have excited you the most or that you're currently excited about sure. that you guys have been working on? Uh, number one on the list has to be water damage prevention technology with respect to our middle and large commercial property book. It's something we've been working on for several years now, um, and we're at the point where we're scaling it and operationalizing it, which is actually a very different muscle for us uh, than sort of creating that early stage prototype. Um, we believe that the for certain classes, uh, the ROI on us paying for and deploying water damage prevention technology and, and giving it to our customers um, is 5X what the cost of the technology is for the Hartford, just because water damage is such a severe um, and prevalent cause of loss. Yeah, I'd say there are other classes, though, where we can either continue to stay open uh, from an appetite standpoint, um, or perhaps on the flip end of that, um, be more aggressive and transition some of that margin we capture through the loss prevention into more aggressive pricing over time to drive market share penetration. So why I'm excited about it is because if you can save those losses, you can reinvest those avoided losses into appetite expansion, growth, or additional services that you offer to the customers to, to please them. So um, I'm excited for those reasons and because it's the first one that we're really scaling. Um, so we're targeting water damage prevention. We're targeting 400 plus customers a quarter. So that's for us, that's a pretty meaningful step change relative to the experiment scale that we had before that. So you're not, you, you, you know, you're not, you're not the only ones doing this, right? right. So there, there, there are others out there and you, you and I know some of the others out there doing this. How's Hartford approaching that, that you think might be unique or different? Or do you think that this is going to be a right to play in the property business? Like you're going to have to have water sensors to even get a policy in the next 10 years? I do think for some classes, uh, this is going to be like sprinklers, right? There's going to be properties that, yeah. you know, we just are uncomfortable with the risk unless you have a sprinkler. And, and the same thing is going to go for water damage prevention technology. I do see that evolving in a similar vein. Uh, with respect to the competitive environment, I don't know that it's in the long term, something that's going to distinguish one carrier from another um, in such a way that somebody's doing it dramatically differently. Um, but the sooner you get these things in market, the sooner you get a head start is, you know, Mateo and I, Carbone and I talk all the time about this. IoT is a muscle, right? And it's something that takes practice and it takes effort and you have to work out every day and you have to hone that muscle. And the sooner you get started and the harder you work at it, the further along you're going to be. And I kind of feel like it's it's a never ending race, but you always want to be at the beginning of that race uh, with, with things like this. And so I think longer term, what, what we're doing that I think is different is a high level of concierge service for our customers. Um, so we're not just saying you have to have water damage prevention technology or we recommend you get it through our risk engineering org. We're actually providing it. We have partnerships with the vendors. We're bringing that to them. And we're very what we're trying to be really smart about is the economics. 
when are we going to pay? When are we going to ask the customer to pay? And how are we going to reflect that in our pricing strategies and our underwriting strategies? And I think that's really where the rubber meets the road in terms of execution. It's not the idea of water sensors. It's the execution of water sensors that will make the difference in terms of who really captures that benefit that is unique to them. Yeah, just just striking a partnership up and offering a discount to a client. Uh, if they, I mean, you know, hey, you can buy discounted water sensors if you want. <laughs> it, it's that's if it doesn't net you more yeah. revenue than you had before, then it's not a useful yeah. innovation. No, not 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 particularly useful. Whereas whereas when you actually are providing and installing and even monitoring that network, that's a big deal. Because you're you're uh, you're you're reducing you're reducing real I mean you're really reducing losses and have, having had to file a water claim personally mm-hmm. on one of my commercial properties in the last year I'm amazed at how much damage even a small line I had a I had a fridge ice maker line I mean it destroyed several hundred square feet of flooring <laughs> I mean it it's amazing yeah. it's amazing it's amazing how little water can damage so much so the you know the the savings are real are you um well I, actually I'm gonna let it do because Rob's got a really great great question after this so rob go ahead yeah dan just want to build on this kind of scale up and and roll out um and you talked a little bit about the iot innovation lab at the hartford coming out of the work that you had done engaging with insurtech startups and one advantage that startups have right is that ability to to move fast and they have usually a, a narrow focus and for larger organizations they may have more resources but ironically there's more bureaucracy it's harder as you kind of refer to a lot of uh, annual bonuses and compensation are tied to things like combined ratio, revenue growth, et cetera, not necessarily aligned with long-term innovation plays such as IoT. So mm-hmm. uh, what are you doing at the Hartford to speed up insurance product development and deployment to maybe compete with some of those uh, startups that are offering similar type products? Yeah, and, and I think we're um, two main things. Um, one is a deep meaningful investment in data and analytics, um, including partnerships with startups, by the way. So that's not just, that's not an exclusive internal build. And the reason I say that the data analytics is critical to that is because presumably if you're going to do something innovative, it's because you have a novel insight, right? You you understand that you've got new data or a new insight that can help a product work better than the way it works in the market today or help a customer get better service than what they get from the market today. So that's where the data and insight comes. And it's Partly it's data capture, whether that's third party, although I'm a bigger fan of first party data um, because that's where the uniqueness comes. If it's data we have that isn't for sale in the general market, which is why I love IoT, and I'm sure we'll come back to that in a, in a few minutes. Um, so getting more data, but also the horsepower to drive the novel insights out of that data. And that's, that's no small feat when you think about wearable devices where you've got a dozen different types of devices with different types of data coming off them. How do you rationalize that, normalize that, and develop an insight across your book from all the deployments you've done. Um, There's a lot of effort that needs to go into that type of thing from a data engineering and a data science standpoint. Um, So I think those are important muscles uh, to accelerate innovation. Um, It's actually, honestly, from my experience, one of the areas that startups have been pretty good, right? Like they've, they're pretty good. Some of their first hires are engineers and data scientists, and they get good talent there. Um, so we partner with them or we work in conjunction with them to get that data, process that data. And then beyond that, the thing that really greases the skids for us is the the philosophy of it's okay to take some risk. And by that, I mean to flip the chicken and the egg problem upside down that we always have with actuarial science around new product development. So, you know, it, historically, if you'd go to a product team and say, I want to build a new product that rates off of this instead of what we rate on today, 
they'd say, well, do you have a million policy years of historical data that show <laughs> us that that's going to be profitable, right? Yeah. Um, but if you if you ask that question every time for new products, you'll never be able to launch yeah. a new product. Yeah. At some point, you have to pull the cord and take a risk. Um, and so having an R&D P&L, the ability to go and have an isolated pocket somewhere, a little P&L where we can take those experiments and, and wall them off and measure them and keep them controlled, and uh, which allows us to then do things where we say, we think we're going to make money on this. We think this is going to have a good combined ratio, but we don't know until we try it. That allows us to try, which really is going to speed up the product development lifecycle for us um, by giving us the chance to try things before they're proven uh, and prove them along the way, as opposed to wait till we have concrete proof before we try something. Yeah, that's awesome. Rob, I know as a, as a former underwriter too, uh, you know, he, you, you probably have a, a, some, some insight into, into the difficulty of rolling product out where you don't have data. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I always tell people what's unique about the insurance industry among many things, but one of the biggest things is that you don't know your cost of goods sold, right, till after you've sold the product. And so, right, that that's kind of novel for a lot of folks outside of our industry. And so, um, exactly to your point, Dan, it's like, hey, when you, you don't know or you're materially affecting that cost of goods sold, or you hope you are, through installing you know, loss prevention. I know it, it, when I was at USA, we estimated that water losses were about 40% of all losses. And they were the ones too that were non-catastrophic, right? So there's certainly mother nature, as you refer to James and others, and you kind of treat those different hurricane risk and, and wildfire and things like that from these, what I call law of large numbers, where it's like, you don't know who's going to have the, the water leak necessarily, but you can look at you know, the age of the structure and things like that. And you can location, things like that, and, and reasonably guess. Um, and so in the past, it was very difficult to kind of um, materially impact those non-catastrophic losses and reduce them. And IoT kind of opens that avenue, uh, that possibility. But yeah, I, I, exactly right, Dan. It's like, how do you do that? You, you kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel, but how do you get there? And I do think there's a first mover advantage here. And everyone, of course, is looking for someone to go first and learn from their failings, right? And try to, to emulate them on the cheap. But as you get the first party data and that novel insight, as you mentioned, I think that is valuable if played right as a first mover advantage. James, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't circle back to your question around what I'm most excited about and mention a couple other things, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. Let's go. So I'm really excited about that, what we just talked about, which is we are just really getting a lot of momentum around not just risk mitigation with IoT, but new product development, incorporating first party data from IoT devices, things like usage-based general liability insurance, um, things like fleet uh, insurance for auto that are usage and pay how you drive, not just how far you drive. Um, there's a lot of opportunities in workers' compensation to do a better job of reflecting the investments that our customers do make in safety technology and the behavioral changes we see as a result of those investments into a more equitable uh, premium price point for those customers that do choose to make those investments. So that work is really, now that we've got a couple of years of data, a couple of years of risk mitigation, now we can start to talk, work on, okay, so how do we take those loss savings or that data and use it to develop new and more compelling products and pricing approaches in the marketplace? There's also some newer tech I'm really interested in, which is things like computer vision. Um, so computer vision is really interesting to me, and we consider that part of our IoT scope um, because it allows you to look for so many different detectors in real time by layering the computer vision on top of existing camera feeds that are there already for various reasons, security, et cetera. And the coverage is so broad in terms of the space, as well as the 
number of things you can detect. You can detect everything from ergonomics to people lifting above their heads to forklifts that are speeding to people jumping over assembly uh, line structures. And so the ability for us to see so much of that, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Um, no one values the ability to get eyes on something more than an underwriter. And the ability for us to do that from an underwriting and a risk engineering standpoint, 24-7, 365, by having the computer watch it so we don't have to have humans watch it, we can almost be there all the time being a continual risk management partner with our customers. And that's just hugely compelling for me. There's other new technology that's just emerging too, like um, occupancy sensors. They can tell you how many people are in a zone within a building and where they're moving and how long they stay there. And uh, I just think there's so many opportunities to gain more granular insights around the nature of risk than what we are, have available to us today as we think about our role as underwriters. Uh, so those are really exciting for us. Yeah, I've, I spent since 2007, I got into construction technology and, and built a, a pretty large bidding network for construction. And uh, it was tied in with pre-qualification and subcontractor default insurance, so the SDI and, and bonding. So insurance had its fingerprints all over my product there. But because of that, I got into a lot of evaluating and reviewing and, and studying and implementing a lot of different construction technologies. Computer vision's been hot and heavy in the construction space, but there's one crossover product called New Metrics. It, it is really, really, really interesting. It used to be called Smart Vid IO, a guy named Josh Kanner. He's a longtime friend of mine. He he started New Metrics. It does exactly that. What was really cool when when not that there was anything cool about COVID hitting, but it allowed him to challenge his software because he uses a machine learning. Well, he uses he uses a series of machine learning models to identify objects and and photos and videos and to transcribe the audio from a from a video mm -hmm. so they can find out what people are talking about. Look for keywords as well, like problem, hazard, error, warning, issue. And then trained their machine learning model to identify PPE, protective equipment, mm -hmm. right? So hands, gloves, and they built a report called the Glove Report. And it is before COVID. So they, within a few seconds, they can peel through a few million of your photos and they can say, here's all the people that, that weren't wearing PPE on the job site. <laughs> like, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. But when COVID hit, they took it to a next step. They, within two weeks of COVID hitting, they trained their model to recognize face masks on workers and they rolled out a industry-wide face mask adoption index region by region of the country uh, and they and every week week they would report on how quickly each region was adopting face masks and it was all direct measurement mm -hmm. like direct measurement of the photos of the people on the job site and if they were wearing their face mask or not so it, it's really interesting to see what you can do with that type of technology. Um, certainly, there's some great folks like Manny Golpavar Fard over at University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. Really led the way on computer vision for worker analysis and movement um, lifting. I mean, he's done a lot of really interesting work there. So uh, I agree with you. It's it's really computer vision has always been in the IoT category for me and my speeches and my talks, and um, it really should be, uh, you know, you, really a drone should be considered an IoT device. Mm -hmm. It's got so many onboard sensors, and there's like 50% adoption now in the construction industry, just for one example of, of drones. I mean, it's not like a small adoption number. Mm -hmm. And they have, they're loaded with a sensor array, you know, and then you got, you know, Marav, you know, who's throwing sensors on cranes. I mean, there, there's some cool stuff mm -hmm. coming out in the in the IoT space and I think it requires that people expand their definition of IoT 
a good bit. Mm-hmm. It's almost like anything that envir- and interacts with humans and the environment has sensors and is connected to the internet. <laughs> like because I agree. I mean, I, I think IoT to most people when we started this journey three years ago that I was talking to meant telematics in personal lines vehicles. Yeah. Um, and then now it's expanded to water damage prevention technology. But I think yeah. the real true potential of IoT is only really just starting to get tapped in terms of the awareness of yeah. the scope of what IoT is. Yeah, I mean, same thing, you know, climate control, it's IoT, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it can tell you if people are in the building that it has motion sensors. There's a really interesting technology that, that attached, I looked, I researched this about two years ago, attached to the, st- the structure of a building, mm-hmm. to the actual beams and columns, and then it can tell you based on vibrations in that how many people are in the on the floor. And I was like, cool. that's amazing. I mean, that that's yeah. still IoT, and it's it's absolutely amazing and useful. So good geeky discussion, but it, you know, tying it back to insurance, the reality is you can you can individually underwrite people once you have their data, right? And you don't have to group rate them anymore. Right, exactly. I, I think, and even within a particular customer, going from estimates and proxies to real measurable risk factors in real time at a more granular level. I mean, we're talking about going for workers' comp, like with wearables, we're talking about going from estimated payrolls and, you know, against workers' comp codes that are self-identified. And, you know, we audit that for sure. Yeah. But if we can tell that one worker in the same job code is lifting 10 times as much as another worker in the same job code, that's a different risk. And we need to be asking ourselves, what does that mean? And what are we going to do about that from a, from a risk standpoint? And so yeah. granularity is, is what really excites me uh, about the opportunity for IoT, plus the real-time nature of it. Yeah, that's a, that's a phrase that I think you'll only hear in insurance. The granularity of the situation is what excites <laughs> me the most. I really like all the minutiae. I'm on the right podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because we do. We actually, we're like, are there large amounts of comma-separated data files? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would like to review these, please. <laughs> Can you please give me the loss history? <laughs> Rob. Yeah, just wrapping up, Dan, I'm curious. So um, we talked about kind of what you're working on today, but what are some of your best predictions for the future of risk mitigation? Yeah, a couple I'll throw out there and maybe ascending order of boldness, uh, so to speak. Uh, So I think we're going to get risk mitigation that's going to be much more real time, right? So instead of it being based on a calendar of I go and I do risk engineering interventions, you know, once a month, once a quarter, whatever that the calendar says, um, it's going to be both more real time because of the technology is 24-7, 365, um, as well as it's going to be a little bit more, not a little bit, I think it'll be a lot more contextually relevant. So we see something in the data that says, hey, you know, there's a risk change here. Somebody needs to go talk to this customer. And it's contextually relevant because it's in response to a condition we're seeing related to risk as opposed to, well, it's that time of the month, so I have to go out there. I do think we're going to see a lot more big data and data make its way not just into underwriting, but also into the risk engineering uh, uh, work. So I think you're going to see the idea that we can pull the cost down uh, from a risk engineering intervention standpoint by making more virtual, hybrid, and contextually relevant um, sort of triaging which customers need it and which don't using more data from sensors, which is going to allow us to bring the cost down and serve more customers from a risk engineering standpoint. So I, I'd love to bring mis- risk mitigation more aggressively down into the areas where it's traditionally been thought of as it's too expensive, right? In the small commercial space and the personal line space. Because I think if you can do it with cheaper sensors and you can only engage the people where the people are needed or at the times the people are needed, you can take a lot of the cost out of the risk mitigation and the risk engineering model and serve more customers and deliver more value. I think the boldest prediction I would make is that in the not too distant future, we're gonna find that 
when carriers think about how they distinguish themselves relative to their competitors, that risk mitigation and risk engineering as a discipline will be on par with underwriting actuarial and claims. I think that that is that level of importance for the future of an insurance carrier that we're going to think about that as an equal leg of the stool. And the reason I say that is um, why I got into IoT to begin with, I had a couple of epiphanies. Um, The first was I was doing an in-depth interview with a small business owner um, helping to stand up our small business innovation lab. And the guy says to me, he's a a customer of the Hartford, he said to me, look, I pay you a premium every year for a loss that I probably won't have that if I do have, you may or may not cover. And I'm still going to have adjacent costs that are beyond what is covered in the policy that I'm going to have to deal with. And it's still a pain in my rear end. He said, I would much rather pay you to stop that loss from happening in the first place. And that was a bit of an epiphany moment. And as I sat back, and I don't know about you guys, but when I talk to friends and relatives at home, occasionally I get the whole, well, you're an insurance like you, you know, uh, don't you just deny claims for a living kind of a response. And (laughs) we know, I, I think we all probably believe, I won't speak for it, but I believe that insurance is a very noble industry, right? The purpose that we serve is both important and noble. I think if we can make risk mitigation an equal stool to underwriting claims and actuarial science, we can change the brand of insurance to one that is helping customers on the front end prevent the preventable. And then the insurance policy and the underwriting, et cetera, is always still there on the back end because there's always the unpreventable, the unpredictable stuff that happens. But we can get out front and prevent the preventable so that we only have to rely on the insurance policy for the unpreventable. There are so many things that happen out there today, and it frustrates me, all the auto accidents that are highly preventable, the worker injuries that are highly preventable. Let's take that out of the system, right? Let's work with our customers. And if we can do that, customers are going to perceive us in a very, very different way. And so that's my mission for IoT and why, why I'm excited about it in my bold prediction. And that is that is your that is your closing. Uh, <laughs> that that's the perfect closing argument. I agree completely. When insurance doesn't function, entire economies don't function, and that's that's the that's the way it works, right? And um, so we we've we've got to do our part in society to to keep the wheels of of business and society moving along. It's just, that's the way it works, and uh, we we have a lot more tools at our disposal than uh, when you and I were kids. It's uh, exciting. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, gentlemen, for having me. And Rob, always good to see you, my brother. Absolutely. Yeah, this has uh, been the first time in a while we've been, uh, I've, I've been your co-pilot on this one. So really yeah. glad to, to be back flying the InsureTech Geek yeah. plane with you, Dan. So great to have you on today. You betcha. I'm always I'm always up for good flying analogy too. That's my favorite. And uh, sorry, I'll miss you tonight in San Antonio. I'll tell Kristen Chinoweth you said hello. Please do. And to all of our listeners out, <laughs> to all of our listeners out there in listener land, thank you for tuning in today to Geek Out episode 94. Our interview with Dan Campany from the Hartford. This has been the Insure Tech Geek podcast, uh, powered by JB Knowledge. That's jbknowledge.com. It's all about transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com with co-host Rob Galbraith. That's endofinsurance.com. Big thanks to Jim Greenlee, our podcast producer, Kara Dalton-Alro, our creative producer. And thank you for joining us today. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next time.